Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Boel, and today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Martin McDonough's amazing black comedy in Bruges. Gee, Andy, it's not clear at all that you like this movie. (laughs) So I saw this movie in college and it was sort of, it it had to have been a thing where I was like, I had it on and I was studying and only half paid attention or was just on my phone or something. I remember I kind of liked this movie. I didn't remember that I fucking loved this movie. This movie is awesome. It's very good. It's very good. And I'm gonna fight you up on up on this up front. I don't know if this is cult, bud. Okay, and and so so if okay, I I thought we were gonna have a little time before this, but present your case. Ah, <laughs> uh, me always shocking. It did really well financially. Yes, it did. But the thing of it is, if you look like it, it did really well financially because of its European release. Okay, but that's not one of their three rules. (laughs) That's fair. It's very, very fair. I think I put this on the list because, like, before I had even seen it, this was always a movie I'd heard you need to see. Oh, this is a hidden gem. And maybe it wasn't so hidden because it certainly made enough money and a lot of people saw it. And writer direct it's the writer and director has gone on to have a very successful film career. Um, okay, it is quotable. It's incredibly yes. quotable. And yes. okay, point to you. It, it was not a financial bomb. Uh huh. But I do think that this is sort of a hidden eclectic movie. Okay. I will I will certainly give you that because it was not on your Amazons, your Netflix. I had to find it on Tubi TV. It's not on any mainstreaming service. And like you said, it's the the writer and director's first movie, correct? Yes. And that writer director being um well-known playwright Martin McDonough. You know, I said on the last episode, if you're a theater nerd, yes, that Martin McDonough, um, who has had a a very, like, well-established career in theater, but had never so much, like, I think he had written a short movie, a short film before this, and then just kind of dove into the scene, writing and directing this phenomenally twisted, fun movie, and I love him for it. I mean, okay, Andy. Andy, okay. I will give you the fact that this movie is, like, half cult. (laughs) It's, like, cult-in-law. It's step-cult. It's it's more cult than anything else, or or anything else Martin McDonough has done, because the other movies he's made are um, Seven Psychopaths, which is a little less obscure um and then three billboards outside ebbing missouri which was an oscar winner so 
Yeah, okay, fair enough. All right, all right, all right. If for no other reason, I think this this deserves to be on the list because of what a niche um what a niche entrance point this is. You've got to be a theater nerd who also is like who also really liked Reservoir Dogs for this to be like a movie that speaks to you. God damn it, you do this every time. Yeah. I tell you I have an opinion, and then you're like, but also well, exhibit A. Okay, wait. And no. I'm like <laughs> I don't like that. I want you to have your own opinion. I acknowledge your opinion. <laughs> this is certainly this is certainly one of the least cult movies we have watched. Okay. So we're both right. I'll take it. <laughs> Can I tell you can I tell you one other thing about Martin McDonough to kind of win you over? Other than he's Irish and his name is fun to say, sure. He's dating Phoebe Waller Bridge. <gasps> oh, they're gonna make really awkward looking babies. <laughs> so yes, neither here nor there, but Irish playwright, film director, Martin McDonough. And the uh, star of Amazon's Fleabag, for anybody who doesn't know that name off the top of your head. Star and writer. Star and writer and director of the short, uh, of the one woman show, of course. I don't want to discredit her many accomplishments. Oh, no, sorry. I wasn't saying that to be like, oh my God, Andy, talk about it right. I just mean like, imagine how interesting their pillow talk is. Must be fucking fascinating. To be a fly on that wall. Absolutely. <laughs> Long pause. I don't want to think about this, Stephanie. <laughs> no, there's just... So you haven't read The Pillow Man, so you don't appreciate what, how good of a pun pillow talk is in this instance. But I do. And I'm hoping somebody out there listening does. You want to talk about the movie? <laughs> Sure, friend. Let's talk about the movie. So in case you skipped it, you have it. I don't have it. Was, <laughs> you wrote a whole thing. I was waiting thing. to see if you were going to read it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In case you <laughs> skipped the movie. In Bruges is the story of hitmen Ray and Ken, who have been sent to the obscure town of Bruges, Belgium to lay low after a hit gone wrong. Ray finds the sleepy ancient town to be a boring hellscape, but finds breaks in the monotony thanks to racist dwarf actors, his own personal demons, and his deranged boss trying to kill him. Oh, you know, small details. Small details. Well, like, so so just a real quick thing. Like, the, the trailer of this film absolutely makes it seem a little less grisly than it actually is sure like i think the trailer makes it clear they're hitmen and they're in bruges but it it spends a lot of time examining the idea of like oh we're the odd couple and oh i hate this boring sleepy little hamlet of a town and oh wacky quirky weirdness fun without all of the heads getting blown off and bullet holes in the throat and people getting a a blank shot into their eye and it blinding them and you know all the gory shit 
case in point, I had um, had a really bad day and I had texted you like, hey, do you think this is a good movie for me to watch after XYZ event happened today? And then I proceeded to watch the trailer because you needed time to respond. And so I was like, oh, actually, you know what? Like, this seems like I could handle it. And then you wrote back, nope, nope. friend, nope. don't do that thing. And then I read the Wikipedia synopsis and I was like, oh, I am very glad I did not. <laughs> Which, okay, I want to take that statement and directly compare it to, I think this is one of the funniest movies we've watched on Cold Fiction. Oh my gosh, absolutely true. Like, I, I'm so glad you agree with me. This... This is so perfectly balanced between just straight up some of the most like hilarious setup punchlines in any movie we've watched and like some truly insane gore. Like if oh yeah, th this is what I'm gonna say. Like if you if you listen to these episodes and you really care about the movie and like you haven't watched it yet but you care about our opinion, I would say go on Tubi TV or Peacock and try to watch this film before listening to the rest of the episode. Yes. But with that said, but with that said, Brendan Gleeson committing suicide and the grisly wet exploding ness of his body as it hits the ground. All I could sit here and think about is we've come a really long way since watching a watermelon get run over for toxic Avenger. <laughs> very, very true. And I loved the, the detail of him throwing coins to the ground. And Alex is like, why is he throwing money? And I was like, cause he's smart and people will look up and make way around the coins so that he doesn't hit them and kill them too. Because Ken is a goddamn peach of a human being. And despite being a hitman, the only person he kills in this movie is himself. I'm, I'm not being funny. I mean, no disrespect. But you're a cunt. You're a cunt now. You've always been a cunt. And the only thing that's going to change is you're going to become an even bigger cunt. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the weird dichotomy of hitmen ethics that this movie talks about? This movie is obsessed with ethical assassination. And that is such yeah. a fun thing to examine and, and creates all these uh, necessary but bizarre plot points. No, absolutely. We can talk about that. I love how Ray and Ken, despite being low-level gangster hitmen, are both really sweet and charming in their own way. Ray, much less so. Ray is an asshole. <laughs> but he's got, like, the asshole innocence of a 14-year-old most of the movie. Yeah. And Ken, Brendan Gleeson's Ken, is just such an amazing, wonderful dad of a character. You know, real quick, <laughs> returning to cult fiction, Brendan Gleeson, we last saw him being a really wonderful dad in 28 Days Later and also dying horribly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder if he just really likes dying on screen. If he's like, yeah, this does it for me. 
I'm trying to think of all the other movies I've seen Brendan Gleeson in, and uh, yeah, yeah, he's kind of a Irish Sean Bean going on. Oh, he's just the sweetest hitman ever. He's really kind. He's really considerate. He kills people for a living. It's fine. Don't worry about it. He's such a like the the morality of every character in this movie is so shades of gray with the exception of sweet Maria, the pregnant hotel owner. Um, Everybody is like either an objectively bad person Mm. or a bad person, but they've got such a heart of gold Hmm. that you you find them to be a good person and and that's ken ken is a a contract killer who's presumably been doing this for a while but he's also sweet and reflective and cares about his protege partner son figure and is mindful enough of other people to like give a warning before he jumps off a clock tower or a bell tower, you know? Yeah. He, he is absolutely delightful. And, you know, talking about the, the ethics of being a hitman, um, let's talk about Ralph Fiennes Harry, who is Ken's he- boss <laughs> and who is an absolute psychopath in a really fun and delightful way. He's, he's this lawful evil kind of thing where it's yeah i'm very clearly a gangster or something and i send people to kill other people all the time but i also have the most strict rigid moral code about said killings and i will straight up like it makes perfect sense to harry to have ken kill ray because ray killed a kid Never mind that it was an accident. accident. Yeah, never mind that it was an accident. Never mind that Ken is very clearly Ray's friend. And in fact, they even mention Ken is the one who brought Ray into the organization. So never mind that there's a personal stake there. It's like, listen, if you don't kill him, then I have to kill you. This is very simple. What aren't you understanding here? And, you know, takes that to uh, to the absolute extreme conclusion when Harry thinks he has killed a kid. And then has a line about sticking to his principles and then blows his head off. Despite having a family at home that he could go back to. Yep. It's very um, Captain Hook. Like, mm. yes, we're yes we're going to fight, but I'm going to make sure you're armed first. Or Captain, you know, Captain Reynolds from uh, Firefly. Like, it's... I do a bad thing, like I'm a thief and a killer, and I kidnap children, in Captain Hook's case, all the time, but I also have these random lines that I won't cross, and I wonder if being in that line of work, one of the things you have to do to kind of, like, accept what you do for a living is, okay, I have this line, this line, this line. And I can't go across them because otherwise I'm a bad guy. Oh, sure. And and it's not just I do bad things for a living. It's 
oh, then I'm bad. Right. It's, it's, it's Batman logic, frankly, but like, it's also presented in just this way of like a man has got a man needs a code. Ken has a code when he stands up to Harry, Harry has a code when he's like, no, you, I don't understand what you're not getting about this. He needs to die. He killed a kid. But in that same, like a man needs to have a code. He makes sure that Ray is able to have a running start before he shoots him. And, you know, refuses to get into a gunfight with a pregnant woman in the room to the point where it's like, okay, well, let's have an awkward five-minute conversation about exactly what we're going to do. Oh, okay, I take a left outside and run towards the alley, and that's where you'll be. Okay, we'll fight there. There's a comedy of the absurd going on. (laughs) throughout the entire film, but especially when it comes to the violence. And I, I love that. I can't speak highly enough. This is such a fantastically written movie. Yeah. What, what movie was it that I, I think I said that this is Oscar Wilde with gangs. Um, wasn't wasn't it? Was. No, that was, that was desperately seeking Susan. Okay. I feel like this is Oscar. I feel like this is Oscar Wilde with like gun violence. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. I mean, so so this reminded me more than anything else we've watched of Green Room. Yeah. Which, you know, I famously love and, and famously had to litigate the quality of it to you in that episode. <laughs> Green Room is certainly a lot less funny and a lot more like nail-bitingly, pants-peeingly tense. But just in the the way that, like, this could be a play. This could be a play. And more than that, the events in the movie can only happen in the way that they do. And I know that's such a weird statement because it's like, yeah, that's how any story works, Andy. But no, it's the fact that, like, Ray needs to meet um, Chloe, the Belgian drug dealer working on the movie shoot. He needs to meet her and go on a date with her where there are the Canadian family uh, sitting next to them so that later Chloe's boyfriend can try to mug them. And that's how Ray gets the blank, which he fires into the guy's eye, which makes it so that he's got a personal vendetta so that later in the film, that guy tells Harry where Ray is and Ray's only there because the Canadians were on the train and were like, that's the asshole who punched me. Kick him off the train. Ken needs, Ken only can jump off the building if he has the coins and he only has the coins because in the beginning of the movie, the asshole ticket taker was like, we don't give change. Exact coins or, you know, exact bills only. This this movie only happens the exact way it happens. If you change any one thing, the movie melts away. Two weeks in Bruges, in a room like this, with you? No way. So it reminds me of Green Room in that, and it also reminded me of Green Room, again, of course, in the excessive gore. <laughs> I don't know if it's well, the goriest film we've seen, but it's up there. 
And it hurts nothing that the background is beautiful. Like, this movie is just plain pretty Mm -hmm. in a way that was really similar to Green Room. How Green Room, before, you know, before you get to the punt club. Right. um, Everything is just so lovely. It's also very economical in writing. Um, I think is the short term of what you're trying to say. Sure, yeah. Everything happens for a reason. Everything is specifically placed in the way that's very similar to green room. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's a a brilliant way of putting it is economics of writing. Why? Thanks. I also think there's a lot of like waiting for Godot esque tendencies in the relationship between Ken and Ray. Oh, sure. Especially in the first half. Yes. Because they're so like bouncing off of each other to establish scene. And it works so effectively because the movie starts with Colin Firth's line. After I killed him, they sent us to Bruges and told us to hang out there. And then they're just in Bruges. And that's really all the preamble you get. And so the characters of Ken and Ray introduce themselves to the audience through that back and forth playoff where it becomes very clear. Ray is this totally immature little teenage prick in Colin Firth's body. And Ken is like the stable, more wizened handler. Who's also content to just be like, no, they said, wait here and take in the sights. So we're not going to do anything other than wait here and take in the sights. You know, this isn't in my notes, but when you said that about him being like a teenage prick and then something else about the father son relationship between them, I'm realizing the reason I'm not as bought into Ray until halfway through the movie when they reveal it's his first hit where he accidentally killed a child. Um, I would have been more bought into him being an asshole, but like for some reason pushing through it, if he had been more closely resemblant to a child. Sure. Like, if he had been more gangly, freshly off of teenagehood, and not Colin Farrell Firth? Which one is he? Oh god, it's Farrell, but I've been saying Firth, haven't I? My bad. <laughs> no, I... That gives me a great mental image, and now I want to recast in Bruce. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> but no, I... It, Because he's such a attractive and well-built man, it's like, oh, you're a proper man. You're well into your 30s or 40s. And not, you're a kid. Like, you're maybe 20. 22 at at oldest. I think having a a more obviously young person in this role would be more sentimentally pulling, I think. Okay. Okay. I, yeah, I see what you mean, and I'm here for that. Um, because, yeah, Colin Firth, it, it, it's all in his performance, and none of it's his physicality. He's a man-child, and because of that fact, y- you actually come across totally not liking him. You know, he, yeah. he is straight-up unlikable for the first half of the movie until... You know, you get the pathos 
and you see the actual like turmoil going on in the guy and the whole story becomes revealed. That said, I love Colin Farrell's performance so much. <laughs> Which is fair. He does a really he does a really 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 fantastic job. I, I, His character is our entire that didn't age well section, but he did an amazing job. <laughs> yes. The character is bad. The actor did just phenomenally, I think. Um, this is somebody else's quote, but somebody called this, like somebody said in Bruges was the movie where Colin Farrell stopped trying to be a dime a dozen action thriller star and became like a one weird movie a year kind of savant guy. And I, I, I absolutely buy that the scene, you know, right after he tries to kill himself and Ken stops him where he is sitting on a children's slide, like just talking to his friend and winds up having just a complete breakdown. Like at that point, I'm like, okay, no, you, you've earned my caring about you. And now you can be the hero of this movie. Absolutely. His, um, the acting on his face as he just has this sudden realization of like, I was so close to relief and now I don't get it. And now I have to sit here in this torture more is just overwhelming. So we've talked about, um, you know, we've talked about theater and we've talked about plays so much and especially the first half of the movie before it becomes, you know, a straight up gunfight for the last half. This re- this reminded me so much of a play called No Exit. Um, and the whole point of No Exit is it's three people stuck in a room, but the room is also hell. And the idea of hell is being trapped with other people. And there's such an obvious comparison to discard No Exit. The idea of raised hell is being stuck in Bruges in boring old Bruges where there's no good nightclubs and there's nothing to actually do. And you're just stuck and bored with the monotony. And that makes like, like thinking of the, about that, that, that he is in his own version of hell and then almost kills himself to get out of it. And then doesn't, it's just, (laughs) it's unsubtle in the best way. Like, like it's so, overt but because it's so overt it just like it it hits you right over the head it's it's the same thing like the idea of bruges hell and we're gonna have our characters go to an art gallery uh with full of hieronymus bosch paintings and the garden of earthly delights which is you know a, a, a painted representation of hell so our main character is going to feel like he's in hell and his sin was killing a priest and a kid inside of a church. Like there's just something about it that I'm like, Oh yes, this is put it in my veins. This is so well-written and like so deviously cathartic's not the right word because none of it is like easing in any way, but it's just like, Oh, that's so bitterly ironic i think that might be what it is it's it's so over the top ironic in every way it's constant setup and payoff throughout the movie the end of the movie where uh harry 
shoots through a person and kills another person who is of small stature, seemingly a child, um, when he has just said 15 minutes prior, he killed a kid, Ken. You don't just kill a kid and get away with it. I would kill myself if I killed a kid. And sure enough, 10 minutes later, it's just constant, like, setting up and unwrapping and unraveling of these beautiful, lovely little murder gifts. <laughs> that's the best thing for it too it's it, it it's beautiful in the abstract because in the actuality it's murder and people getting their heads blown off and blood and and craziness and violence but in in the abstract of what it is artistically in the movie it is absolutely beautiful um, the fun thing about that moment where where Harry you know shoots Ray, did you notice it it literally mirrors Ray killing the priest? Yeah, I I love it. That's that that's that overt symbolism because I think it would take a playwright to be like, okay, you're going to be standing in the exact same position of the man you killed and you're going to get killed in the exact same way. And it's going to be the exact same number of bullets going through you. And just like with you, one of those bullets is going to hit an unintended victim in the head. And it's just, it's a, it's this beautiful parallel. Mm-hmm. Of course I noticed I have a film podcast. <laughs> Fair. Please. Fair enough. I'm so I'm grateful you did. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of grateful i missed it what is this about blink and you miss it cameos oh well so so we haven't even talked about um jimmy who is the dwarf actor um but okay so so jimmy is the actor in the movie he is he is played by jordan prentice who is a real life little person real quick before i talk about the other thing Returning to cult fiction, Jordan Prentice. But do you want to take a guess at where we've seen him before? Uh, um. Jordan Prentice was one of the physical actors for Howard the Duck. <laughs> Would all of the white midgets in the world be fighting against all the black midgets in the world? Yeah. <sighs> That'll make a good film. Podcasting is not a visual medium, so you can't see me. But I'm so upset, right? Like, I just closed my eyes in sheer rage. We'll never be free of that film. <laughs> um, uh, but, but no, speak, <laughs> speaking of other films and speaking of the tangled web of podcasting, you know, we, we watched Baron Munchausen not too long ago, and I talked about how Baron Munchausen is the third in a trilogy, the, the second one is Brazil, which we've seen. And the first one is Time Bandits, which we haven't seen. And I've made a big point about how I don't actually like Time Bandits. But in the movie, Ray, in talking to Jimmy the Dwarf, has this really weird take where he's like, Oh, you must be so sad. I know dwarves usually kill themselves. I know this one dwarf, like I, I heard one of the actors on Time Bandits killed himself which I didn't know, and is very upsetting. <laughs> oh, no. 
but yeah, there's there's your blink and you'll miss it reference to a movie that is waiting in the list for us to see. Oh, yay! And now we have that fun bit of information to hang our hats on. I know it's going to be great. <laughs> so Ray is, like I said earlier, pretty much the one character who single-handedly makes up our blink. Or who single-handedly makes up our This Didn't Age Well section. Yep. But there is very constant upsetting references to people of short statures as the M-word. There's a drop of the R-word. There's homophobia. There's fatphobia. And it's all just tied up in the fun little bow that is Colin Farrell. Yeah, Colin Farrell's Ray is just this big knot of problematic tendencies. Um, the other instance you get is, you know, later he's partying with Jimmy and gets Jimmy super coked up. And then Jimmy starts like ranting about this coming race war. And they get oh. into the uh, they get into the nitty gritty of, of of what races would fight on which side. <laughs> It's very bad. It's very bad. I I love that later on in the movie, um, they kind of reference that, and and Ray makes a, a a joke at Jimmy's expense of talking about the race war, and Jimmy just gets this horrified look on his face and was like, "Did I? Okay, listen, man, that was the coke talking. That's not me. That's not who I am." <laughs> And then proceeds to be like kind of a, a nice, lovely guy for five yeah. minutes before he then gets his head blown off. Mm. Well, and Ray uh, Fine's character of Harry is not the best either because there's he definitely has some inherent homophobia as well. And racism. Yes, absolutely. And racism. Yes. And he he's not necessarily nice to his family. Which, okay, so real quick... You wanted to talk about something that I I think I must have missed, but you were you wanted to talk about the idea that Ray might be Polly, or Harry might be uh, Polly. The Harry, well, okay, so he interacts with seemingly his wife, and then he's saying goodbye to his wife and kids, and he says to mom and insert other person uh-huh. here and his son looks a hell of a lot like second woman huh. nothing like himself and nothing like his wife I... but a hell of a lot like second woman that is fascinating and i completely missed that i mean there's perfectly logical explanations maybe you know they're a blended family and their, you know, second mom brought over son to say goodbye to dad. Um, very possible. But there is just a little part of me that was like, you all seem like you live together. Is this like somewhere on the cutting room floor that I completely missed? I'm going to ignore this and move on. I know this is not part of what I'm supposed to be focusing (laughs) on, but... I, I could buy it for Harry because Harry is just such a a incredibly 
bizarrely nuanced character, you know? He's got no qualms about killing somebody unless there's a pregnant woman in the room. Unless it's a kid. He sends somebody to be killed, be murdered, but he wants to, like, make sure that that person has a good time. So in Harry's mind, he sends them to Harry's favorite place on Earth, which is, of course, Bruges, and is, of course, Ray's version of Hell. Again, just the perfect, <laughs> the perfect, brilliant irony. This might be my favorite Ray Fiennes uh, role, period. Yeah, he does a really beautiful, brilliant job. And he's such a fun character. He's so compelling in his logic, but at the same time, easy to hate and and such a good villain. Mm, yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, the casting, the way it's filmed, the writing... One of the things I kept coming back to is how I very rarely see a Focus Features movie that I don't really like. Mm. So you know how we had a whole conversation about how A24, you're like, anytime I see that logo, I'm instantly like, yes, 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 I'm in for a good time. But I was thinking back on it, and there's so many Focus Features that are essential movies, like Eternal Sunshine for the Pop. Spotless Mind, Brokeback Mountain, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, Atonement, The Pianist. I'm like, wow, they just make really lovely movies. I'm here for that. I will never, and, and I hadn't made that same connection, but I, once you pointed it out, I think that's so lovely and wonderful. I'm always here for a studio knowing the kind of movie they want to make. And it's going to be something beautiful and maybe tragic. And in this case, incredibly, um, an incredible dichotomy of hilarity and violence. Yeah. But no, I love that. Subversive as a rule. Like, I don't think there's any of the movies that I didn't that I just listed that are like, oh, yes, this is a predictable plot and everything's going to happen exactly the way we think it's going to. Absolutely. I think the best um, example I can think of, Bruce Campbell, who is um, Ash from the Evil Dead. He's got a biography in which he talks about him and Sam Raimi going through the actual process of trying to sell a film to a studio and it's called If Chins Could Kill. I absolutely recommend it if people like um, are into that sort of thing. But I've never heard anybody explain the actual actual process of selling a film to a studio and how each studio is like its own vibe and brand than in there. Mm. And that speaks to what you're talking about. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That lights up all the marketing parts in my brain where I'm like, yes, they all have their own brand voice, of course. Absolutely. And and the films have to be representative of what the studio is. Ah, uh, put it in my veins. <laughs> uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> um, real quick, I want to, before we, you know, lean into the stuff we do at the end of every episode, um, we have to talk about Ken's phone call. Oh my gosh, yes we do. Maybe the best part of the movie, at least to me. Absolutely. No, it's lovely. 
you know, talked about how Martin McDonough is a, at this point, he was a first time writer and director. And the scene in which Ken gets a call from Harry and it, it lasts like a good five minutes and it's nothing but Ken and Harry's conversation about how are they liking Bruges and how is Ray doing and make sure Ray's not listening. And Oh, by the way, kill him. It's mm. so brilliant on so many levels. And that part more than anything else could be like, could be put on stage and it would affect in just the same way. And the reason it, that that's the case is because there's no cutting. There's no editing. It's a five minute long take of Ken on the phone and, and the camera follows him around the apartment. And when he gets up to pretend that he's sending Ray out, the camera follows him to the door and we just never leave Brendan Gleeson's beautifully emotive performance. And it takes such a wisdom from a director to just be like, listen, you are a world-class actor. I'm just going to leave the camera on you. I know you can do this in one. I know you're going to knock it out of the park. Let's go. And he does. It's brilliant. You know, I'm not sure if it's really his thing. What do you mean it's not really his thing? What's that supposed to mean? It's not really his thing. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? Nothing, Harry. Well, and it has that some that symbolic underlay, right? That we're with Brendan Gleeson, we're with Ken through this conversation. And so it starts really funny and uh, yes, I'm opening the door and closing the door because I'm pretending that my coworker is actually taking a piss when he's really not here. He's supposed to be here. He's not. And it goes through the improv of following him doing the silly pantomime to you have to kill someone you kind of see as your son figure. And the the tonal shift in the scene, but not changing the cut, not changing that at all, kind of lets it affect us, the viewers, deeper. Yeah, because Brendan Gleeson displays every human emotion in that scene, except for, like, white-hot rage. Mm-hmm. You know, he smiles, he gets annoyed at Harry's like insistence of no, just cause you send him out of the apartment. It doesn't mean he's gone. Go check the hallway. And Ken, you know, gets annoyed for a second, but he doesn't vocalize that. And, and the pain and the sorrow when he realizes, Oh, I'm being told to murder my friend slash surrogate son figure. Like it is just such a well done bit of film in every way. And it makes it even better the next time Ken calls Ray and says, here's the deal. I didn't kill the guy. I'm not going to kill the guy. You can go suck a big dick. You know where to find me if you want to do something about it. And then we cut to Harry. And it makes that moment better. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I, I absolutely 
adored McDonough's direction in this movie. He he does a lot of little things. The camera so many times is like clearly on somebody's shoulder when it didn't need mm-hmm. to be. So much so that I'm sitting here being like, oh, that was a choice. Okay. Okay. I'm here. I'm here for this. I'm with you, Martin McDonough. <laughs> Just a really fantastically made film, I think. I agree wholeheartedly. So should we give it some Oscars? Let's go ahead, yeah. Awesome. I would like to award in Bruges the Oscar for Best Tourism Ad. For Bruges or? Yep. Because <laughs> at the end of this movie, I was like, real talk, how much are tickets to Bruges? I have my first vaccine. Let's go. Let's go. Let's see the swans and the canals and the church where there's some blood of Christ and just have a, a, a wonderful medieval European quiet vacation time. Cause listen, it's the, you know, it's still pandemic time. I don't want to go to a fancy city with lots of nightclubs. I want to go someplace where people aren't going to be. Uh, Let me go to Inbridge. Okay. You're playing Mm -hmm. 3D chess here. I get it. Is that the one where you pick up the pieces like with two arms because they're big? Or is 3D chess the one where there's like three different teams? So what I've always thought 3D chess is the one where there's like three different boards and they are stacked higher or lower than each other, depending. (sighs) That's so pretentious. (laughs) Well, I meant it as a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. No, the compliment is kind. <laughs> the idea of 3D chess is pretentious. Oh, well, fair. I think it originated in Star Trek. It was supposed to be future chess. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am now. What is your Oscar, Andy? So, you know, I've, I, as I... I'm realizing I kind of do this in episodes. I kind of spend the entire time talking about what is eventually my Oscar. Um, Uh I would like to give in Bruges the Oscar for best film debut from a playwright. And, you know, off, off the top of my head, I feel like there have been one or two instances where we've seen something like this. We, we, we've certainly seen lots of other people's first films. You know, we watched, um bad taste and i'm blanking on other stuff but my point is any of these films where we've seen somebody and it's their first film it's usually pretty bad or if it's not bad it's like broken in a way where it's like oh it's interesting to see how your career is going to get better this movie Mm. was martin mcdonough's first stab at it he did double duty with the writing and the directing and just, it's a knock out of the park. This is, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say this is my favorite movie, but this is certainly one of my favorite movies that we've seen for cult fiction. I love that. Yeah. Yay. And so just in every way, Martin McDonough did a phenomenal job in this. And I think that seriously deserves commendation. I have to say, I agree. And so speaking of commending Martin McDonough, what's your favorite quote? This is a very quotable movie. It's a very quotable movie. Mine takes a little bit of explanation. Are you with me? Absolutely. Okay, so at the end of the beautiful scene 
we had just spent some time talking about. Um, Harry, the boss of these two hitmen, says, are you going to do it? And Ken replies, of course I'm going to do it. It's what I do. And my Disney-raised brain goes, it's what I live for. (laughs) Because in my brain, those two phrases go together. It's what I do. It's what I live for. Because I'm Ursula, I guess. There are certainly worse worse Disney villains to aspire to be. (laughs) Yeah, she's just an incorrect octopus who doesn't want to live where the people are. She understands that nothing is more important than body language. She knows that men don't like a lot of blather. The ones who gossip are a bore. Like, listen. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) Oh, do you not know that this is my karaoke song? I did not. Yeah, this and Earl has to die. Okay, well, (laughs) as this pandemic hopefully comes to a close, I I know what we're doing and it's going for karaoke. Oh, God. Uh, I will have so much liquor. Okay, uh, what's your quote? My quote is not a song. It it cannot be really put into a song, but it is maybe my favorite. Okay, it's not my favorite moment in the movie. My favorite moment in the movie is a silent moment, and it's when Ray is all coked up and he's talking to Jimmy and Jimmy's hooker. And he yeah. has this whole big monologue about dwarves and hookers and just life and then at the very end brendan gleason who's been doing coke in the bathroom his head just kind of enters the frame staring at jimmy like he's a fucking barn owl (laughs) that is the hardest (laughs) i laugh in this movie it is my favorite moment (laughs) my favorite quote is after Harry gets off the phone with Ken and you see Harry and Harry is stunned and he starts beating the phone and breaking it and throwing a little tamper tantrum. And his wife comes in and goes, Harry, it's an inanimate fucking object. You're an inanimate fucking object. (laughs) It's awful. It's an awful thing to call your wife. And it is one of the best insults I've ever heard. I will give you 50 whole real person dollars if you call Mo an inanimate fucking object. I will pick the right moment. <laughs> and then you will find a new host for the show. <laughs> because you will be dead. <laughs> but you know who that host might be? <gasps> oh my god, I would lose my entire loving mind <laughs> if Kevin Bacon was my new co-host. If Kevin Bacon reached out to me and was like, hey, I see what you're doing. I really enjoy it. I I think I could step in and and make this a little better. I could get you some more views, but I I want your, I want to take your spot. I would have to concede because I'd get it. Wisely choose to not comment here. What is your Kevin Bacon friend? So I got to Kevin Bacon into Um, You know, talking about how Brendan Gleeson is just the purest sweetie baby angel. Um, He does not die in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Although he is locked. Technically, he is locked in a trunk the whole movie. Uh, But nonetheless, Brendan Gleeson was in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire as Mad-Eye Mooney. And he was in that movie with Gary Oldman. 
and Gary Oldman was in Murder in the First with Kevin Bacon. Nice. Yeah. I also got it into using our friend Jordan Prentice. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Jordan Prentice was in Mirror Mirror with the one and only Nathan Lane, who was in She Said, He Said, She Said with Kevin Bacon. I love it. Was Mirror Mirror the, um, it was, it was Snow White, but it wasn't the one with, um, what's her name? The chick from Twilight. Oh, I'm ruining this. Kristen Stewart? Yeah, because there were, there were two, like, reimaginings of Snow White that came out in the same year. And one was Snow White and the Huntsman with Kristen Stewart. And I'm assuming the other one was Mirror Mirror. The other one was Mirror Mirror. Um, it won the Oscar for Best Costume Design. Or no, I'm sorry. It was nominated for Best Costume Design. Oh, okay. um, But did not win. But yes, well, look, that is the one. It, yeah. I love that. Look at Jordan Prentice getting around being a incredibly successful actor. <laughs> look at him. Yay. <laughs> well, maybe he'll be in our next movie. He might be. Yeah, I I didn't know he was in Howard the Duck. (laughs) And we will, of course, find out the same way we find out what all of our next movies are by going through a random number generator and putting our fate in the hands of the Hollywood crypt. We have a grand total of 294 films in the crypt so far. And we are going to be watching on the next episode number... 265 265 is a bad 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 movie from what i remember no um next time on cult fiction we will be watching 1999's beowulf which i don't know how I, I, I'm not going to say I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Beowulf. I, I know you know it well. But have you ever thought about what it would be like if it was a sci-fi... <laughs> sci-fi demon-slaying um, piece of shit? N- n- no, I, I can't say I have. I've written, I've written papers on Beowulf. I can't say i've reimagined it as sci-fi garbage as you called it in our crypt notes well perfect then you won't have any idea of what to expect (laughs) oh jesus no i just looked it up to see where to stream it and just the movie poster is it looks like a bad episode of buffy this is worse than almost any bad episode of buffy Let's see. Oliver Cotton as Hrothgar. Okay. I'm, right, I'm actually sure. curious where, if anywhere, it can actually be found. It, um, YouTube. Yeah, I was about to say, it, it does look like it is available on YouTube, Vudu, Amazon. Uh, it's going to be $3 not well spent if you rent it on any of those. But here we find ourselves. Here we find ourselves. It is at least five minutes over a tight 90. So. 
All right, that's all for <laughs> this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time as we uh, interact with the sci-fi reimagining of the classic ancient epic poem and also watch Christopher Lambert try his best. Oh no! For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell.